0: Welcome to the Big Golf Show. I'm your host, Nick Andrejko, alongside with Eric Arbe. Eric, how are you doing? Doing wonderful. How about yourself? I'm actually doing really great. Uh, thank you for asking. We, on the, we have a big show today because we have PGA of America President Ted Bishop on the program. So he's going to yes. talk with us a little bit about, uh, you know, what's going on in the game. We're definitely going to try to pick his brain on what kind of technology he's using and uh, marketing techniques maybe and just overall mentoring and business as it relates to golf. So... Uh, Ted, thanks for being on the show. I know that you're globe trotting and you got a trillion things on your plate. So thanks for making the time for us. Um, how are you doing today?
1: Well, I'm doing good. Happy to uh, join you guys and uh, look forward to the next few minutes.
2: Terrific. Well, Ted, for uh, for people listening that maybe don't know a whole lot about you or about your background, we'd love to just hear a little little bio about yourself and how you came to be um, basically the president PJ of America right now.
1: Well, you know, actually, my start in golf was somewhat unlikely. I didn't play as a kid, and I played basketball and baseball, and had to play a ball sport in Indiana to play basketball, so I played tennis. And uh, actually, I got a job working on a par-3 course in my hometown of Logan Sport, Indiana, between my junior and senior year in in high school. And I think I worked that entire summer and uh, never hit a golf ball liked it, though, and I had always enjoyed watching golf on TV even though I didn't play it. So long story short, I worked five years at that uh, Part three course, and uh, between my freshman and sophomore year at Purdue University, I changed my major to agronomy and turf management and uh, graduated with a, a degree in that major. And the uh, first job I got coming out of college was uh, – at a small municipal course down in southern Indiana where I was the pro and the superintendent. And uh, they really kind of hired me first and foremost as a superintendent, but I was going to make my living doing the things that the golf pro did. So that was kind of how I got into the professional side of things, and I uh, decided in 1981 that I would go take my player's test and I would try to get my – PGA of America membership, and I I did that, and I guess the the rest is history, so to speak. And today, uh, my facility here, the Legends Golf Club, is located about 25 minutes south of downtown Indianapolis. I've got uh, 45 Jim Fazio-designed holes, uh, 27 championship holes, and also an 18-hole par 3. And the Indiana Golf Association, the Indiana PGA offices, and the Indiana Golf Hall of Fame are all located on site
0: said how, how did you get would you always aspire to be pga professional or how did that come about getting involved at that level
1: you know i i, I would say when i got out of college um i really didn't because again i hadn't played a lot of golf and uh i mean i I'd, I'd, I'd played some in the summers when i was in college but you know i always enjoyed playing and i was a decent athlete uh so you know i i went to a pga professional and uh, actually took some lessons and uh know i got better and i just kept working on my game and you know got to the point where uh you know i decided that i would i would give it a shot it's kind of funny uh actually i took the uh the pga playing ability test five times before i passed but you know the first time i took it i i missed it by five shots which was the worst that i ever did second time i took it i missed it by two and then i missed it twice by one shot and uh You know, I I was the uh, typical choking dog down the wire, Um, (laughs) and uh, I remember one time I'd missed it by one, we'd had a 36-hole event at my club, and we actually, um, I I won the, uh, you know, the scratch division, I think I shot something like 65, 67, and then when I went and took my PAT, I couldn't break the target score of 150, so... You know, finally I passed it on the last PAT that they offered in Indiana that year. And uh, really, it's kind of a funny story. I'll, I'll never forget this. And this should be inspiration for anybody listening that, that's had similar circumstances. But, you know, I shot uh, 42 on the front nine. And uh, I remember sitting in a golf cart in the middle of the 10th fairway thinking, you know, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done. You know, I've got a good family. i got a good job. You know, my career at that point probably isn't going to make any difference whether I do this or not, and I, I really just kind of gotten that I don't care type of attitude, and I played the next 22 holes, and I think it was one under par, and I got it back in a position where I, I, I think I had seven holes left, and I could uh, theoretically finish with seven straight bogeys, and I would hit the target score on the head, and. I uh, proceeded to reel off six straight bogeys, and I'm standing on the 36th hole of my PAT needing to make a bogey to hit the the number on the head and get out of there. And, of course, I just missed the two previous PATs by one shot, so I'm thinking of all the things that could go wrong. And, uh, you know, I hit a safe drive. I laid up short of the green. I pitched the ball on the green, kept it out of the bunkers, (laughs) two-putted, got my bogey and (laughs) got out of there and and passed. And then the – the first event that I could play in in the Indiana section after I passed was the Indianapolis Open, and uh, it was maybe two weeks later, and I shot seventy five, seventy two. I finished eleventh in the tournament, and it uh, it just goes to show that you know sometimes playing to a target score is a lot tougher than uh, than going out there and trying to compete.
2: Well, no doubt. I think we've all all had those those fun P A T stories, Nick. I know know I've had my share.
0: Yeah, it's you know I'm glad that you stuck with it there, <laughs> Ted. If not, you do you think you'd be a member if you uh, if if you didn't if that didn't happen? Do you think well, you know that was there? part of the problem.
1: You know, back back then in the early '80s, I was a non-member head professional, so you know I could not do anything in the PGA apprentice program until I passed that PAT, and uh, couldn't couldn't play in anything either. Uh, in, in the rules that our section had. So it was really like I had no status and those PAT's were really the only competition that I could get involved in and uh, you know if I didn't pass that PAT that last one that I took that year in August, then I would have had to have waited you know an entire year and going through the whole process again the following spring. I mean I couldn't even go to business school one back then until I passed it. So you know there there was a different type of pressure on me than there might have been if I'd have been an assistant, because um, the rules were a little bit different. And and the other thing that was kind of interesting at that point in time in the PGA of America, if you were somebody like me who was a pro superintendent, uh trust me, there were a lot of guys that uh you know, just kind of they they looked down at you. You know, you were just you weren't quite the same because you were uh you know, you were doing the superintendent's part of the job. So um you know it was uh, it was just it was kind of weird you know back back then but you know i got involved with my section uh they called me and asked me to be on the board of directors in the in the late 80s and and did that and then became a section officer and then obviously got involved in in the national end of things but i really i i can't sit here and tell you that it was my lifelong aspiration to be the president of the pga of america
0: well you know, well, fast forward a few years, and now that you are, I know one of the big things that you're um, an advocate of is the Get Golf Ready program. Um, yeah, absolutely. Keep, keep, I mean, I, I
1: think it's in, in my time as a being in the golf business 37 years, I think it's the best player development program I've ever seen. And the reason I say that's pretty simple: for $99, the consumer gets five one and a half hour lessons from a PGA or LPGA professional. And the secret to Get Golf Ready is that each one of the sessions includes an on-course component where you actually take the student out and they play golf and uh... you know the numbers speak for themselves eighty percent of the people that take Get golf ready stay in the game the first year and and they will tell you the reason they do that is because they've been out on the golf course and they've had a chance to play five times And if i look at how we were teaching golf back in the early eighties and 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 even into the early nineties when uh... you know earlier in my career we always kind of had that perception that you weren't going to take people out on the golf course until they were ready and uh the game was in a different place than it is today i mean it was back then it was we didn't have any issues with rounds and we had all the business we needed and we could be pretty selective on who our customers were but that's all changed and uh you know you're right i'm a huge advocate of get golf ready
0: What's the, you know, some of the things that we've heard about that is, you know, it's devaluing. Like, you know, I've, we've heard that before that, hey, i got to give five lessons for $99. But basically what you're getting at is, is the same thing that we tell everybody is it's an investment. You know, you're – Well, you're,
1: it's, but, you know, that's <clears throat> quite honestly, you know, I mean, that's the ignorance of, of the PGA member that, that says that because if you deliver the Get Golf Ready curriculum correctly, you know, you get eight students in a class and you just do the simple math. Eight times ninety nine is seven hundred ninety two dollars, and you're going to teach for seven and a half hours. Then it comes out to one hundred eight dollars an hour. And as I've gone to section meetings around the country, and I've probably been to twenty five or twenty six in the last four years, and when I ask golf professionals how many people in the room teach and make more than one hundred eight dollars an hour, there's very few people that raise their hands to that question. So. This, is, uh, this has been part of the educational process that, you know, we've had to undergo with our own membership. and uh, But that being said, we've seen an increase in the number of facilities that participate in Get Golf Ready from, oh, about 1,400 back in uh, 2010 to where we're now close to 4,000. So a lot of the professionals around the country have figured it out. Plus, if you're a golf pro, part of your value to your employer is being able to reach to generate residual revenues and what what PGA members have got to do is they've got to be smart enough to be able to have some kind of a tracking mechanism in place at their facility where they can label these get golf ready players and at the end of the season they can go into their employer whether they're get golf ready players or whether they're students in general any you know good golf professional should be able to go into their employer and say hey these were the people that I instructed this year And here was the amount of money they spent at the facility. Here's what it did. And I think that uh, that just helps emphasize what their value is to their employer and their facility. And and this is, again, part of the educational process and the way we've had to change our mindset um, over the past few decades.
2: Ted, I really like the comment there about the tracking mechanism. That's something that we try to talk with a lot of our clients about, about using some kind of customer relationship management tool. Um, have you have you seen the growth of that a lot from well, uh, a lot of the it, section meetings or?
1: Yeah, no, there's no question about it. I mean, that's been part of the message that we've tried to deliver to our professionals, particularly the last couple of years. And and uh, there's very few golf courses out there today. I mean, there's still some that don't have uh, some kind of an automated t sheet or some kind of a POS system or some kind of a an electronic database. And uh, it's it's very easy to tag your get golf ready customers or your students in that database and to be able to run reports but you know we even put together a series of paper reports that uh, you know we were able to circulate to to anybody that you know that needed some help that if for some reason they didn't have an electronic system that that could do all those things there's there's still ways to do it and uh, again it's It's just more than anything getting the golf professional into the mindset that these numbers are important, and they're probably no more important to anybody than they are to you and your employer. And, you know, sometimes employers or boards or bosses or GMs or whoever you're going to work for, owners, they see the golf professional out there on the range tee giving lessons, and and maybe their first thought is, well, you know, all that that professional is doing, whether they're male or female, females, are out there lining their own pockets with less money. And the fact of the matter is what you're doing on that range tee is you're creating a customer. You're trying to uh, develop loyalty with you personally as a golf professional and, and at the facility. And uh, there's certainly a revenue component that's going to be in place for the facility, no matter where you work, with the students that the golf professional teaches. So it's really incumbent upon the golf pro to be able to produce those numbers and to be able to go into the, the people they work for at periodical times during the year and to be able to demonstrate and show their value.
0: Definitely.
2: I like, like the value added.
0: Well, Eric, we talk about that all the time though, the education side of it. I feel like the golf, and I'm, we definitely are not picking on our fellow professionals. I get accused of that every now and then, but we really want everyone to kind of elevate themselves a little bit. So everyone makes money. Everyone has fun and, Everyone has a job, um, it's, but it's, you know, do you, Eric, what do you think about the whole idea of, you know, Hey, you, we, times have changed, whether it's social, whether it's improving your stuff, get doing stuff, like get, get golf ready, getting them, you know, that whole education side of it. I mean, I, yeah, I yeah. Mean, we, we deal with
2: that all the time, especially in, in just the, the product that we put out in, in websites and online marketing is getting people to use our product and, all the benefits it has to it all the things that it can do requires education and it's similar to exactly what you're saying there that all these things are available to golf pros but making the the education known about what it can do and how it can benefit them is the key part because that's that will show them the benefits of why they should use it which will make them use it in turn so yeah it's it's easy to get stuck and and say oh these things are great but how are they helping me well they're not going to help unless you learn about them and learn how to use them. you got to hustle. Well,
1: you know, I, I think the other thing that's interesting, too, is you go back to the generation of, of golf professionals that are, that are my age. And, you know, I got out of college in 1976, and I talked about how my first job was structured and how I had to earn a living. And, you know, a lot of golf professionals back then owned part or all the concessions. And as a result of that, you were – pretty much forced to think like an entrepreneur and your ability to put food on your table, send your kids to college, whatever the situation might have been, depended upon uh, your entrepreneurial skills. And you developed them in, in a hurry. And, you know, we're kind of into a different generation of golf professionals. Uh, they're highly skilled, they're highly trained, but very few of them have ever been in an entrepreneurial set of circumstances. Most of them are paid Weekly or bi weekly with a paycheck, a salary, and they really haven't had to experience things from the lens of a private contractor. And, you know, it's easy to sit here and say that if you put somebody in an entrepreneurial situation, they'll succeed. But I've seen it firsthand with teaching professionals that I have here who, you know, I've tried to uh, really get um, better equipped on being player development directors more so than just teaching instructors. And it's a, it's a skill that has to be learned. So, you know, one of the things that PGA of America is, is in the process of doing is trying to come up with an educational system that we can implement at the section and chapter level, which will help develop some of these entrepreneurial or player development skills for all of our members. Because I just think that this generation of golf professionals that we have now that are 25 to 50 years of age a lot of them have never been exposed to circumstances like I was. And uh, as a result of that, sometimes they what 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 seems simple, it, it isn't always simple.
0: That's an interesting angle. I've never really thought of it from that side before. Eric, we never really talk about the, the entrepreneurship of the yeah. The, the... yeah. I like that. I'm going to look into that a little bit more. Yeah, I like that. It's, uh, I might steal that, Ted. <laughs> the um well, I know recently you um the big news was that you uh you help assemble um this task force for golf. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe share what the whole goal is of that and, and why you maybe did it?
1: Sure. Well I think anybody anybody who's at the PGA show this year, there was a little bit different type of energy and uh in discussion, momentum coming out of the show. And I think rather than uh having it focused on uh, equipment and, and technology there there was really a buzz that started i think on tuesday night when mark king the ceo of taylormade introduced this concept of hack golf and, and basically what he did was he created a website HackGolf.org, dot org and and he's trying to utilize the process of crowdsourcing where you would get public participation and get plenty of feedback and people would submit ideas on ways that they thought the game could be more fun more inviting more entertaining and uh you know i think that mark kind of set the tone for the show and we came out of it as uh as a leadership group at the pga of america and just said you know we're every year we get in more and more of an urgent state with the game and it's time that we really take some drastic measures uh, this is a sprint and a marathon we need to do something that's going to make a tremendous difference right away. So we put together this task force, and, and you know, I guess our three goals with the task force were to, first of all, look at how can we redefine the golf experience? And if you talk to people that don't play the game, a lot of times they will tell you they just don't have time to go out and play even a nine-hole round. And if if somebody wants to come to the course, And they've got 30 or 90 minutes or 45 minutes to budget for recreational time. In most cases, we don't have a product to give them in golf. So we need to develop a product that uh, is is short of the uh, traditional round of golf. And we also need to look at some alternative methods of playing the sport that will introduce people to the game. And one of the really cool, innovative things that I saw at the show was this concept called foot golf. And it's basically combining soccer skills – at a golf course where you play with a soccer ball to a 21 inch hole and you know I'm going to put it in on my 18 hole par 3 course I've booked two outings in the last week and these are big outings these are 360 player outings and uh, they're fundraisers for local soccer clubs and anybody can play soccer but the thing that's intriguing to me is that the soccer people will tell you that they've been playing a, a version of foot golf Their soccer practices for years, but now to be able to go to a golf course and actually be able to play on a real course, play to a real hole, is a pretty exciting thing to them. But more importantly, to be able to take this soccer crowd, which is usually not a group of people that would frequent a golf course, and to get them to the golf course, to expose them to the environment, the surroundings, and everything we have, I have to believe that we can take a percentage of those soccer players and we can convert them into golfers. So, It's almost the old bait-and-switch tactic where we got people at the course for for one reason, and uh, maybe we can get them involved in our game. And I think the third area that we need to to take a look at uh, immediately on this task force would be what I would call a a relaxed set of guidelines. I hate to use the word rules uh, because people get jumpy when you start talking about bifurcation, but as we all know, there's a bunch of recreational players out there who – don't have handicaps, who aren't playing by the rules, who really don't care about the rules, who are just interested in going out and having a good time, playing the game with their friends, being outside, enjoying the confines of the golf course. And we should be able to come up with a simpler, less um, detailed, stringent set of rules that would allow those people to go out and, and have fun, play faster, and enjoy the game more. Now, the whole goal would be able to take that group, which I would call golfers, And transition them into players someday and the players would be the people that do have handicaps that do compete locally in competitive events that you know might go on to play at the elite level so there's a lot of interesting things that this task force can do and and, uh, you know we felt it was important to to involve people in the task force that were really outside the traditional part of golf so you know we got Arlen Cantarian who was with the United States Tennis Association basically resurrected the sport of tennis when he was the CEO of the USTA we've got Bodie Miller the most decorated uh, American skier uh, who also happens to be a single-digit handicapper for both the left and right side who we feel can give us some insight as to what um, an extreme sport like snowboarding and skiing did together to help kind of resurrect uh you know that part of, of, of that sport and then we got tom dundon who was uh the creator and part owner of the top golf concept which is a driving range on steroids which took technology and a bunch of really cool things uh to what would have been viewed by some as a traditional driving range experience and turned it into something totally different uh it's it's, it's the most incredible phenomena that i've seen in a long time and Mark King will be part of this task force and then we thought we needed a female perspective. So we've got Dottie Pepper and Ashley Mayo who's in charge of the digital strategy for golf digest. And Ashley's twenty five years old and one of the brightest minds in golf. And then we need a minority component and we've got Damon Hack from the Golf Channel and Melvin Bullet, who was a, a former player with the Indianapolis Colts, who got his start in golf um at a play golf America Day here at my facility. So, I think we've got a very diversified group, and uh we've got a big job ahead of us, but we're anxious to dive in there
0: well, one of those steps that you talked about was guidelines, and I know that you've been kind of a maverick uh coming out uh with the the grandfather asking for the grandfathering of the of the anchoring uh rule the u s g a has what uh, was that part of is this on the same am I in the same kind of uh in the same realm here is that why you're trying to initiate kind of different rules for this those amateurs or
1: well I think uh I they they could be indirectly, you know, tied in. I mean obviously you know, uh Commissioner Fincham and I got shot down in our efforts, you know, for a grandfather period with the anchored putting stroke, but I just think that uh I I would give you maybe three examples and these things are already going on with a lot of players anyway, but what's what's wrong with uh if if somebody hits the ball out of bounds Uh, instead of taking stroke and distance. And these are people that are not posting scores for handicap. These are people that are, again, are not playing competitively. I'm not advocating that I'd run my Saturday morning men's club this way. But uh, go up there, you know, take a drop where your ball went out of bounds. Instead of looking for your ball for five minutes, you only got two minutes to look for it and just keep playing. And instead of using equitable stroke control where if you're a, 34 index and the maximum that you can take on any hole you play is a nine make the maximum you can take on a hole a double or triple bogey and just keep moving if your balls in a divot take it out of a divot get a good lie hit it if you want to tamp down spike marks in your line tamp them down i mean there's all kinds of things you can do that are being done now that would just be what i would call a fun set of rules and uh... that would be rules that that foursome of guys that have played together for years who don't play in anything else could go out and play by and would probably speed their their round up and certainly their enjoyment
2: interesting so that that's basically the the bifurcation fancy word that's being passed around the industry,
1: yeah, and again i you know i I like the the term an alternative set of guidelines because I think if you talk to people who don't play golf, one of the reasons they'll say they don't play is because. They think we have too many rules. They're intimidated by the structure of the game. So, you know, I think there's there's nothing wrong in this day and age with the society that we live in to have uh, just a a more relaxed way to approach the game for the recreational
0: players that are out there. Sure. Well, Ted, shifting focus just a hair, one of the fun parts, I guess, about being president of the PGA is you get your involvement in the Ryder Cup. Can Can you talk a little bit about, what you do give us a little insight so people that wouldn't know kind of some behind the scenes Ryder well, Cup stories
1: yeah sure uh, i mean i was uh was very involved with the selection of tom watson as a Ryder cup captain um you know the president of the pga of america really kind of takes the lead on presenting who they would like to see as the Ryder cup captain during their term as president and that can be done in a variety of different ways but in, in my case I just felt like that when we went to Scotland in uh, 2014 it'd be 21 years since we'd won a foreign Ryder Cup and so whatever we were doing wasn't working and it was a time to look at, at doing something different so given Tom Watson's playing record in Scotland he won four open championships there and he won two of his three senior British Opens in, in Scotland uh, he was also the last winning Ryder Cup captain that we've had on foreign soil in 1993 at the Belfry. Uh, he was a pretty obvious choice in, in my mind, and I was able to garner the support of my fellow PGA officers and our board of directors, and so we named Tom as our captain after the last Ryder Cup at, at Medina. And uh, I think that uh, you know he's going to bring a whole different dimension to the Ryder Cup uh, than we've had in the in the last decade or so. And and I don't mean that in, in any disrespect at all to the prior captains we've had because they've all been good captains. I was very fortunate to be with the team uh, at Wales in 2010 when Corey Pavin was the captain and certainly at Medina in 12 when Davis Love was the captain. And those two guys did a fabulous job. And we all know the captain never hits a shot during Ryder Cup play. And, and, and those two guys put our team in a position to win, and they just didn't get the job done. But Tom's a whole different deal. Um I mean, he's a golf icon. I think that the players respect him. He's a tough guy. He's all about winning. And that's his main focus in the Ryder Cup. He's not going to worry about being everybody's friend. He's not going to let players tell him who they want to play with. Uh, you know, he'll do the pairings the way he thinks they should be done. And uh, so, I think he's he's what we need right now. And I feel really good about the uh, the form that the American players are in. Uh, a lot of good young players up there at the top of the uh, Ryder Cup points right now, and it'll be interesting to see how things unfold as the summer goes on and the major championships start.
0: Yeah, it's a really young group right now, and only three captain picks, right, this year? That- yeah, it is. But
1: I think the thing that people need to keep in mind when they look at those Ryder Cup standings every week, like right now, there's still, oh, about 58% of the Ryder Cup points that are out there up for grabs. And when we come to the PGA Championship, with the purse increase that we put into play this year. The, uh, the PGA will be the last official event that will determine who the nine players are that solidify spots on the Ryder Cup. And the winner is going to get uh, $1.8 million for winning the PGA, and the majors are worth double in Ryder Cup points in a Ryder Cup year. So somebody's going to get 3,600 Ryder Cup points for winning that PGA Championship, the runner-up is going to get 2,200 Ryder Cup points. And, you know, it's probably going to take somewhere around 4,600 or 4,700 points to make that Ryder Cup team. So there's going to be a lot of things that could happen at the PGA Championship, and there could be a player that's well down the list. um, But by virtue of of all those Ryder Cup points they get in the PGA Championship could play their way on the team. So the drama is going to be there all – all summer long and then I think it's gonna be interesting to see what Watson does with his three captains picks, and I'd say those will largely depend on uh on who the nine players are that make the team.
0: Does he solicit you for advice on that?
1: He's not gonna ask me <laughs> who uh he thinks the players would be, but I you know, I the thing that I think is interesting about Tom, I mean he's the oldest Ryder Cup captain that we've ever had. He'll be sixty five years old when we play at Glen Eagles. And the knock on him when we named him was that some people said he was too old. He couldn't relate to the younger players. And I was at uh, at PGA National the uh, the day that the Honda Classic finished, and and I was having breakfast, getting ready for our board meeting the next morning. And Russell Henley walked into the the restaurant, and of course he had won in a four-way playoff the day before, and we had a nice conversation. And uh, one of the things that he had told me was that he had gotten a text from uh, Tom Watson late the night before congratulating him on the win. And the thing that's impressed me about Watson is just how in tune he is with these younger players. I mean, when he when he's out there playing some of these tour events that you'll see him in this, this summer, uh, you'll see him playing with the young guys. And when Andy North and Raymond Floyd, his two assistant captains, go to some of the tour events, the guys they have dinner with, are these new guys, these young guys. And Tom is doing everything he can to really try to get a, a pulse of who they are and get to know them. And, and I don't think he's afraid of, of youth. I I think the one thing that, that he does feel is that maybe it's better to have players on that team with no experience rather than have players who have a bunch of bad Ryder Cup memories.
2: That's going to be fun. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be a good season. What do you
0: yeah, think, Nick? yeah it it's it'll be interesting how it pans out, but it, yeah um Ted so i want to ask can you give everyone a kind of a uh, an idea of the amount of time that you put in um you know being giving a little insight into what it takes being the president of the p g a and how much traveling you do and how much you're away from your club and your family and um you know just how much goes into that? Can you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, it's, you know, from the day you get elected as Secretary of the PGA of America, it's an eight year commitment. You spend two years as Secretary, two as Vice President, two as President, and then two as Honorary President. And, you know, as as President last year, I traveled 194 days, and uh, it's probably going to be about the same this year. And it's a volunteer position. None of us get paid. Uh, You know, we do it because we love the PGA of America and what we stand for, and we want to try to help our, our members. And uh, you know it's a huge commitment, and it's uh, it's tough on your business, it's tough on your family, and uh, you know that's about the only way that I can describe it. But it's it's truly it's a labor of love. Uh, I have absolutely no regrets, you know whatsoever. It's it's certainly uh, given me a lot of opportunities in golf that I I wouldn't have have had, and and it's the old adage that you know, as much as I feel like I've given to the PGA of America, I feel like it's given more back to me.
0: That's a lot of traveling. That is a lot. 194 (laughs) days. Wow. (laughs) Sounds worth it. But the, um, Hey Ted, if you don't mind, we got a, um, we reached out to, um, on Facebook and Twitter and got some questions, um, from some local, I mean, not local, but, um, fellow PGA professionals. And we just, uh, See if you don't mind answering a couple of them. No, we'll sure. keep them. Uh, some of them, I haven't heard some of these before. So, uh, th- like this this one right here. From I'll, I'll leave names out just in case you you don't like it. Um, <laughs> the CEO um, uh, Peter Barvaca, uh has hinted towards changing the nonprofit status of the PGA to to a for profit association. Someone wanted to know if this was a serious discussion and what are the benefits. I've never heard of this.
1: Uh, that that is, is there's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever. Okay. Uh, to change the PGA to a a from a nonprofit to a profit association, the, the tax consequences of that uh, would be uh, incomprehensible. There's absolutely no truth to that whatsoever.
0: Okay. Yeah, because I couldn't find anything on that, so I was like, well, that might be a good question to really squash that if that was actually yeah. going around. <laughs> okay. No, it's, it's okay. Not a... Um. Uh, the, uh, another one we have here is: um, Do you believe the game of golf actually grew in the '90s and 2000s, or was it all fictional growth from easy credit over the growth of the housing market and people spending money that they didn't have? And if we compared the growth of the game from the uh, in the 1980s compared to today, we would see a nice growth and not have this panic of it shrinking. Any well, thoughts I think the
1: growth, of, yeah, the growth of the game in terms of the number of players that came into the game. You know, it started in the mid seventies and, and it, it ran into the early nineties. Uh so I think we definitely had more players get involved in the game. Um you know, and, and, and actually you know, we've we've lost a few players, but we've been pretty static over the past ten or twelve years. But the real problem arose from a supply and demand standpoint with the number of golf courses that were built. And uh the question it really nails the problem you had a bunch of golf courses that were built in the late 1990s in the united states that were done by residential developers and they were built with no regard for the demographics of golf in the areas that they were constructed in it was simply because that developer needed fairway frontage to sell lots with and as a result of that uh, you had far too many golf courses built and you didn't have the number of players increase Proportionally like it did in that 15-year period of time, say, from 1977 until 1992. So as a result of that, uh, the golf became what I would call a consumer-controlled business. And uh, if you're in the operations end of it like I am, that's just not a very good place to be.
0: The last one we had here was um, someone wanted you to talk about how many resources – and I don't even know if this is a fair question to ask because I don't know if you know the exact numbers, but it says how many resources are being put into making sure that we don't lose players compared to the resources being put towards adding players, and can the PGA truly help in reducing the forces that are pushing the cost of the game up?
1: Well, I think that uh, you know the the resources would be – I'd like to think they're allocated equally. I mean, again, as an operator that deals with this problem day in and day out, it's you You have to be sensitive to both areas. I mean, you want to hang on to the customers you've got. You want to enhance their experiences so that you, in fact, can keep them. But on the other hand, you've got to get out there and you've got to try to create new players and, and you've got to grow the, the business. You know, I was at a symposium on Monday, and there was a comment made that was widely agreed upon by everybody that was there. And it was that this demographic of people who play the game that are 55 years of age and over – they really don't care about anything other than affordable golf and making sure that their golf is accessible. They don't want to see the golf courses crowded. They don't want to see more rounds played on the facilities that they play in because you know that might in in their minds impair their experience in, in some way, shape, or form. Now, if you're an operator and you own a golf course and you're looking at, okay, who's going to be playing my golf course? In 10 years from now, or 15 years from now, or 20 years from now, and those people aren't playing, it's a pretty scary thing because it's a proven fact that this group of people that are 18 to 35 years of age, um, there's a 35% less amount of their population that's involved in the sports than the generation in front of them. So I think that, you know, golfers by nature, to a degree, are selfish. And uh, there's a lot of people that enjoy playing the game. That quite honestly could care less about the future of the game, and I think that that's that's the thing that's tough sometimes for us as operators. Um, they're valuable customers, but at the same time, you know we've got to look for ways to to pr- preserve the future of the game, and uh, it's 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 an interesting balance. But I'd like to think that the PGA of America is is, is equally plugged into both those things.
0: Well, kind of on that note, Ted, could you put on your your fortune teller hat? and um do you think that we're on pace uh for the the 2020 goal of of doing the 40 million golfers
1: well i think that was one of the biggest mistakes the pga of america ever made was to come out and announce that we were going to try to grow the sport to 40 million players when we were losing half a million players a year at that point in time and uh, i don't see any way that that's going to happen uh, i've been one that has said you know within the ranks of the pga of america that we need to come out with a a statement that corrects that, uh, and basically, and puts no quantifiable number on on what's going to happen by the year 2020. Because at the rate we're going now, uh, you know, we're going to have 22 million players in the game if we keep losing them at the pace we have the last two or three years. So, I, I think you've got to put the numbers aside. You, you've got to really dive into what the task at hand is. That's that's why we felt the urgency to um, put together this task force. And and I've said this to a lot of golf professionals As I've had the opportunity to speak to them as their president over the past 18 months. Player development is it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. And you can't get frustrated if you're in a situation like we've been in the Northeastern quadrant of the United States for the past couple of years with the weather we've had. I mean, I don't care how good you may be at player development programs. If you don't have good weather in the North, you've got nothing to sell. And so it's been tough to to really gain any traction or see anything positive from your efforts. But you just, you got to hang in there and you've got to really be innovative. You got to get out of the box. You got to change the way you're doing things. And you got to hope that you make a difference. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, guys, some operators are never going to embrace that. And uh, they're going to be the ones that are going to drift by the wayside. And the good ones are going to figure it out, they're going to be the survivors and they're going to be the ones that uh, someday down the road are going to have busier golf courses.
2: Wow, Ted, I am really glad you said that about the number Um, that Nick just mentioned there about the Golf 2.0, the 40 million, because we've been biting our tongue for a long time about that. So now that you said it, I feel like it's okay to say that.
0: (laughs) You know, but we've also been saying what what Ted's been saying, maybe you – hopefully carries a lot more weight when he's when he's just said it was basically yeah there's going to be people that don't embrace this and they and they i won't go as far as to call our fellow professionals or those guys lazy but um you know there's gonna be certain guys that hustle and certain guys that don't hustle and i guess the the guys that we talk to at least eric they go those guys are hustling and they're doing great um you know
2: Put your time into so, it. And put the effort into it. It's gonna, it's gonna happen. But yeah, like you said, Ted. I mean, really, the, the that has been a tough winter, and it's tough if the weather doesn't cooperate and stuff. But yeah, just sticking it out is really, yeah. I like the analogy there that it's definitely a marathon, not a sprint.
1: Well, and you know, you take a, a a program like Get Golf Ready, and and you know, the, the puzzling thing to me is, you know, when I sit here and I tell you guys that there's an eighty percent retention rate for the people that go through the five sessions and yet only thirty eight percent of our PGA members are actively engaged in get it, in giving Get Golf Ready programs and yet they can go out and they can deliver a program like this and they can make $108 an hour teaching which is more than they normally would make so it's a it's it's an interesting dilemma uh... and, and it's one that I, I honestly I can't quite figure out but um, but I think we're making inroads, and I think that there is a you know a good portion of our membership that's starting to figure it out, and they're understanding that you just can't approach the sport the way that uh, that we once did because we're we're competing for a lot of different entertainment dollars and, and certainly recreational time, and uh, you know with the technology age and social media, as you mentioned on two or three occasions, it's just too easy. For people to get on a mobile device or an iPad or some other electronic device and uh, and do things that are entertaining. I mean, you, I mean, let's face it. You can go, you can play Pebble Beach online or you know through some <laughs> type of a mobile device. And uh, I mean, you can shoot seventy two at Pebble Beach and and maybe never have had a club in your hand. And you know that that's kind of a scary thought. Uh, you know, in terms of will that person ever play golf? Um, but you know, these are challenges that we face, but at least we know it. And, and I, I think the PGA of America is, you know, making the effort to try to do something to change it.
2: So,
0: Ted, what do you want to do when you're? Because um, you got honorary president coming up, and then um, and then what's after that? What are you? Uh, what are you going to do? Well, you into? know, I just
1: like to. Uh, I like to play more golf. Um, you know, I think <laughs> last year with my travel schedule, I only had a chance to play. My course eight times uh you know I, I probably played 40 or 50 rounds of golf and most of it was on the road but you know i've got a seven-year-old grandson that's uh you know he's a member of our pga junior league team here at the legends and i've uh, got a three-year-old granddaughter and uh you know i look forward to uh, getting both of them involved in the game just like i did my two girls when they were little
2: Nice, and and Ted, uh, along that same line of future forward statements, um, <laughs> and is there uh, any insights you can share uh, with us as to what's next for the task force? Any uh, secrets you can divulge?
1: Well, I think the first thing that's going to be next will be uh, will be our first meeting, which we're going to hopefully have here in the next thirty days. And uh, you know, we're we're encouraging anybody that's that's got any ideas, any serious thoughts, to go to hackoff.org. And you can submit those ideas through Hack Golf, and they'll filter down to our task force. And I think that's the other exciting part of this, is that basically this movement, as I would call it, is open to anybody that's either in golf or out of golf. And uh, it's it's probably the most unique set of circumstances where you can communicate directly with people who are going to make decisions on the future of the game. So we'd love to get as many people involved in this as we possibly can so you can spread that word
0: beautiful we will put that link on uh on the com when we we post your podcast here um to make sure that people can easily get there ted i appreciate you coming on i know that um you're super busy that's a lot of traveling much more than i'm glad it's glad it's not me (laughs) i'm glad (laughs) that's i'm i'm uh Uh, We appreciate the time coming on, and we appreciate uh, he said making, uh, being being candid with us, and and, uh, hopefully uh, motivating some some fellow professionals to get get involved with some of these programs, especially like Get Golf Ready, and and get involved with this task force and and express their opinions.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and I appreciate everything you guys are doing to uh, not only promote the game, but hopefully uh, instill some uh, enthusiasm in our fellow professionals.
2: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Eric, all right, Nick. Yeah, Eric. Where else can people find us? Real quick, people can find us on the web, thebiggolfshow.com. dot uh, com. You can find us on Twitter at thebiggolfshow, or you can open up your iOS device, your iPad or your iPhone, and go to the podcasts app, type in the Big Golf Show, or just go to iTunes on your computer and uh, go to podcasts and search for the Big Golf Show.
0: Cool. Thanks, Ted, for joining us, and Eric, we'll. Um we'll do this again soon. Yes All right, sir. Thanks uh, a lot. Thanks guys. Take care. I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh-huh.